Well, we're going to continue today, obviously, in our study of Proverbs, and we come today to Proverbs chapter 5, and I have to tell you that um, this particular chapter uh, is a heavy chapter. The subject matter is heavy uh, until you get to the end where it's a a great encouragement. Um, But the subject matter that it deals with is uh, the whole issue of infidelity, uh, marital infidelity. Uh, Really, the the focus of the passage primarily of the the chapter centers on the the forbidden woman and the the allure of the the forbidden woman and um, the cautions against against falling into the traps there. And and really, it's it's a heavy kind of thing to contemplate and to think about um, as we look at this passage, and yet... It is something that obviously is in the scriptures and is of paramount importance, and even in the context of life in the body of Christ and life in the world that we live in, um, it's a a, a hugely important um, topic and subject for us to really think about uh, from the biblical standpoint. So we will just uh, do our best to walk through it faithfully and uh, be encouraged and challenged by it. Just a few little statistics and information to kind of... um, introduce the, the study. One article that I read stated that one in four Americans don't think that a one-night stand counts as cheating. So we live in a day and time where <clears throat> if, you, uh, don't, if, if you don't want to feel guilty about something, you just change the definition of things. <clears throat> if you are particularly attracted or compelled in a certain direction that was once considered taboo and that at one point in time the norms of society would, would help to stem the tide of trajectory in that direction of more uh, increased numbers of people, uh, you just change the meaning of things. And so infidelity now, in the minds of one in four Americans, according to one statistic, uh, if it's kept within the confines of a one-night stand, is not really cheating. It's pretty convenient. In a recent Barna study, four out of ten Americans believe that adultery, adultery, adultery is morally acceptable. For Christians, that number was one out of ten. Think of that. I mean, one out of ten, you'd say, well, that's a, that's a small percentage. I'm glad it's less than the rest of the world, but one out of ten. Like, who's the one? Perhaps there is no reason to wonder why adultery is on the rise. Now, this particular writer said, when reading research... About those who have affairs, the statistics can vary greatly. Most researchers come to this general conclusion, that over a third of married men will cheat on their wives, that nearly a quarter of all married women will cheat on their husbands, and that more than 50% of all marriages will be impacted by one of the spouses being unfaithful. Here are some other interesting facts. Back in the 1960s, it it was usually the husband who was unfaithful, Today, researchers are finding that women are just as likely as men to have an affair. So, I guess what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? It's now ubiquitous. You can kind of see that with like the whole women's rights. Yep. You can trace this to cultural movements very, very clearly. The statistics uh, prove that out very clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Society as a whole, um, you know, it was really the, the sexual revolution that kind of opened the floodgates of all kinds of different ideas of con- and concepts and, uh, and pushed the envelope of, of sexual norms and, and everything of the sort. But um, really, if you look at Romans chapter 1, you see how this, this tide flows, um, and, and, and it's really not anything new. Uh, in, in reality. Uh, as a way of comparison, so I just read the statistic about the 1960s comparing husbands and wives where it used to be primarily centered in the husbands who were uh, principally unfaithful as, as a statistical um, fact, and then that's, today it's no longer the case. It's pretty equal. As a way of comparison to how adultery, adultery has become more prevalent, a 1983 study found that 29% of married people under 25, had an affair, 29%. That's in 1983. 
By comparison, only 9% of spouses in the 1950s under the age of 25 had been involved in extramarital sex. And I would just add that that study that shows the dramatic increase from the 1950s is only up to 1983. And so the trajectory, if the statistic were more current, um, I'm sure would be even more dramatic. 10% of extramarital affairs are one-night stands. 10% last more than one day, but less than a month. Half of all affairs last more than a month, but less than a year. And 40% last two or more years. That's a 2000 statistic. One of the commentators that I used to prepare, uh, David Hubbard, his introductory statements, I, when, I, when I read it, I couldn't help but think that here's a man. By the way, his commentary is really more pastoral in nature. It's more oriented toward um, really the, the preaching and teaching exercise as opposed to being a very technical, exegetical commentary. And so it has a much more pastoral tone to it. And you could just tell by his opening uh, paragraph that I'll read to you that, that it seems like this is a man who's had to walk through situations and scenarios with people in his ministry um, where he, he really understands the nature of this and the destructive nature of it and the need for this kind of caution. I'll read several different quotes from him as we go through, but here's how he introduced it. He said, Unworthy company and unreliable words, these are the two major enemies that set snares in the paths of the wise. A hallmark of the prudent pupil is to know why and how to avoid them. As important as truth-telling is, choosing right companions is an even more dominant theme. The wisdom speeches begin with a warning against hobnobbing with greedy men. That's found in chapter 1, verses 10 to 19. And they conclude with an, in, an indictment of a lustful woman in chapter 9, verses 13 to 18. So this section that we're in, this instruction, these speeches of wisdom to, of, of a father to his son or sons, it basically opens up with a caution against consorting with uh, an inappropriate people, a greedy man in chapter 1, to an indictment of a lustful woman in chapter 9. It's like bookends, this warning against um, avoiding people who would uh, lure you into sinful paths of life. Between the beginning and conclusion, the speeches direct pivotal paragraphs, for example, in 216 to 20 and 623, and entire chapters, chapter 5, that we're in, and chapter 7, to the death-dealing dangers of consorting sexually with a person outside of wedlock. So the point that he's making here is that this is a major theme, a major point of emphasis in, in this particular section of Proverbs, and it's proven so by the, the amount of content that's devoted to it. Well, let's read this chapter together, and let's kind of get the the context of it in our minds, and let me turn to it quickly. We'll be in Proverbs chapter 5. It says this, My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house, lest you, give her, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go down to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to instructors, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone, 
and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So obviously this passage uh, paints a pretty stark picture, and um, I can just tell you as one uh, my, in my family, both myself and my wife have um, experienced um, in our families the, the pain and destructive nature of this particular temptation and sin. And it's really striking to me when I studied this passage how, how accurate and precise it is to describe how all this plays out in the life of, particularly in this context, a, a young man, how, how it can happen. How do we justify, how do we reconcile this with the fact that Solomon had concubines out galore? I'm not sure what you mean by how do we justify it. How could he preach like this to his son when he had so many concubines? I'm just hoping it's the same way I do with my sons and my, my son and daughter in that I, I, I parent imperfectly. I mean, if, if, my, if the standard for the precision of my teaching rested upon the, the absolute perfection of my adherence to what I'm teaching, then I would be disqualified. Now, this is a pretty glaring uh, sin. <laughs> well, I mean, the point is, is that, that the truth stands on its own in spite of who's delivering it. I mean, he's, he's conveying what is true. So, yeah, it's like the pot calling the kettle black, or is it the kettle that calls the pot? Whatever. It just seems to me that his son would say, oh, right, Dad. Well, you also, the, 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 um, the uh, common understanding is that this was written before. This is written in early Solomon life in Ecclesiastes and later Solomon life, so it's quite possible that his uh, his exploits were not as great, but I still don't think that that's. Um, I mean, that's never a disqualifier. I mean, you have in the New Testament, you have the Apostle Paul rejoicing that the gospel is being tr- preached, even if it's being preached by people with untoward motives, right? Because it's the fact that the gospel is being proclaimed. So this is another a, a principle here that I have to apply to myself. Not I'm not confessing to any <laughs> unfaithfulness in my marriage, of course, but. But I'm saying that in, as a general principle, I mean, we, we, we parent and instruct our kids imperfectly, right? I mean, that's just, that's the common reality for us. It is glaring in the sense that his exploits were substantial. But even when you look at Ecclesiastes, I actually went back and kind of skimmed through Ecclesiastes because I, you know, I was thinking some of the same things. Um, over and over again, it's just quite striking there, even in that book that's devoted to him painting this picture of, of the fut- really the futility of folly and the wisdom of walking with God. There's even a section there about about that's really a, a similar instruction as here. So, um, so that's that's what's going on here. Even if it, even if there's already um, uh, guilt and shame in his life, the instruction he might be teaching from from firsthand experience of the the. the bitter root that this is in in a man's life. So that's also another possibility here. But the fact of the matter is, is that this is a, this is a very, very helpful instruction and warning, especially uh, in its context to a young man. um, When you think about how this really plays out in, um, in his life. And it always, uh, these, these speeches kind of start in a similar fashion over and over again. It really starts initially with this call to attention. You see it in verses 1 and 2, where he says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. This is a very familiar phrase that he uses over and over again. He's, he's saying, pay attention, listen up, incline your ear. It's a, it's a call to what I'm about to tell you is of, of value. It is um, filled with wisdom. And it's this appeal to not just have a passive uh, attention but to incline, to bend your attention, to bend your engagement toward what I am going to teach you. 
But he says this in verse 2, this next uh, phrase, that I, I find to be quite compelling and quite interesting and maybe a little surprising. He says, after he says what is a very common phrase, incline your ear to my understanding, or excuse me, be attentive to my wisdom and then incline your ear to my understanding. He says this, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. So I want to put this question out. Why do you think uh, he uses this particular phrasing, that, you're, that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge? Especially when we're talking about infidelity. Would you define what you think he means by your lips preserving knowledge? Not yet. <laughs> but Yes. I'll give it a shot. I just want to know what you think. Like, that's interesting. Isn't it, isn't it kind of an unusual way to say that your lips are going to guard knowledge in the context of a caution against infidelity? Well, knowledge is what you have in your heart and in your mind. And the way it displays itself is by your actions. Okay. And so your lips, essentially, are the actions that can reveal what you're thinking in your heart and your mind and your knowledge. Yeah, you could kind of go back to what we talked about last week about out of the heart flow all the springs, all the issues of life. It's out of the, it's out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that there is an inextricable, inextricable link or connection between words, words of, of truth or words of falsehood, and conduct, words and wisdom, words and folly. There's an inextricable link, always. And this, this instruction, this, this, this warning, this call to attention is really putting an emphasis on that point. And, and that it's, a, it's, a, it's highlighting the, the imperative for us to be about what is true to be speaking truth, to be pursuing truth, to be understanding truth, to be consuming truth, and to be speaking truth to ourselves routinely. That connection of words to wisdom, words to knowledge, words that ultimately lead to action. So keeping or protecting, it's this idea of guarding knowledge, that your lips are speaking words of truth, that on your lips are words of truth. And when you read the rest of this passage, what you see is this movement, potential movement away from what is true, what is real. So it's an important reminder. And when you think about this in, in our modern context, I mean, I couldn't help but think of Washington, D.C. And, and the, the center of American politics, and I don't know about you, but when I hear people speak in political terms, it drives me crazy. I mean, it, it drives me batty because it is, it's never, it's ne- hardly ever is it just straightforward words of truth, accuracy in describing what's going on, clarity and accuracy in describing what they really think about a matter, right? It's all almost always nuanced and couched in ways that they can if they need to sort of explain it a different way in a different context, they haven't locked themselves in by what they've said, right? I mean, it's this connection between the words we speak and the truth that we hold to. I came across this article that I think is illustrative of this very principle. The uh, title of the article, it's a Forbes article from 2013. Washington, D.C., capital of marriage and fidelity. As home to the nation's most powerful politicians and deal makers, Washington, D.C. is no stranger to backroom deals, broken promises, and the practice of looking innocent while engaged in dubious undertakings. Perhaps appropriately, according to AshleyMadison.com, a dating site for those in search of extramarital affairs, our nation's capital is also packed with cheating cheaters looking to two-time their spouses. The site, a Canada-based social network of almost 13 million that matches the adulterous-minded announced 
in a press, con- a press release that D.C. saw the highest number of signups per capita in 2012 at 34,157 new members. Ashley Madison also said that Texas cities Austin and Houston held numbers in the two and three position. The connection between people who are locked in to what is true, who are constantly speaking truth both publicly and to themselves, versus those who are more oriented towards slight variations from the truth. Even in the slightest ways, you can be sure that sin is not far behind. And in this context, if you just want to draw the analogy, this whole issue of infidelity is a hallmark of that kind of environment. So he draws us into this particular principle of of guarding knowledge uh, with our lips, with words, with words of truth is the implication. Uh, one, uh, One commentator said this, to hear the teacher is to muffle the call of the temptress and vice versa, and vice versa. To not hear the teacher is to be open to the call of the temptress. Refusal to answer her or responding with a forthright no is the way that lips may guard knowledge. In other words, there is a resolve here to protect fidelity. And it is connected to the words that we speak, the words that we believe, the words that we think about, the truth that we imbibe and meditate upon day and night. Well, you see in the next verses this dire warning against infidelity. Verses 13 to 14, it's really a big part of the passage, and it is definitely a dire warning. And it begins with, the I just call it the fatal attraction of the forbidden woman in the first couple of verses there. Verses 3 and 4, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, you, you see this, this person, this, this person identified as the forbidden woman, but we've already been introduced to her. We've already seen the forbidden woman mentioned uh, and characterized in chapter 2, verses 16 to 19, which says this, So you will be delivered. He's, he's highlighting in chapter 2, um, if you pursue wisdom, if you pursue it passionately, if you pursue it diligently, as though it's treasure. Remember chapter 2 is that whole injunction to highly value and prize wisdom and to pursue it as though it, it, has, it carries that kind of value like treasure. And if you do that, he says in chapter 2, verse 16, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And listen, here's how she's characterized. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back nor do they regain the paths of life. One commentator said this, No matter how flattering are the words of the temptress, she is totally unreliable, having broken her covenant with her husband and her God. The outcome of such treachery for her and her unauthorized companions is death. Now this picture that you see here painted in uh, Proverbs chapter 2 and then sort of elucidated in terms of her her actions and the way she operates here in this chapter, it really places a spotlight once again on truth. And and part of the priority here is for for the young man, and by implication and application, all of us, to see people and situations as they truly are. And that the danger, the failure, the temptation is to begin to see them as something that they're not. That's the implication. And chapter 2 could not paint it in a more stark way. That this woman has broken covenant with her husband and her God. And her pathway leads to death. And none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. This is a destructive relationship. A deadly relationship. This is a person who is not lovely and beautiful and compelling and interesting and fun to talk to and fascinating. This is someone who has broken covenant with their spouse and with their God. That's who they are. 
And we must see this person accurately, truthfully. Well, you get into chapter 5 and you start to see that the temptations are real, but they coincide with this idea of, of really maintaining a grasp on reality as the safeguard against being succumbed by the temptation. Because what you see here is that this forbidden woman has smooth yet fatal words. And you see this, these, these vivid images that are given to describe this. You see this woman who, who has this compelling and convincing appeal to what would seem like a truly satisfying experience, but it ultimately gives way to profound and deadly pain and suffering. In other words, this, this attraction, if the temptation is stepped toward, it has this compelling appeal. It, 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 it has this convincing appeal of satis- being a satisfying engagement. That, that's the idea here. He uses these terms like the words, her words, drip honey. And it's literally this idea of the freshest honey from the honeycomb. Like it's dripping literally from the comb itself. It couldn't be more fresh and sweet. That's how these words are characterized. I mean, <laughs> this, is pro- this is really shifting gears quite a bit in terms of imagery, but I couldn't help but think about Winnie the Pooh. And Winnie, here's Winnie the Pooh, who is in his pursuit of honey, right? He's going after the honey from the honeycomb. That's the best honey, but he's completely forgetting always what? The bees, the bees that sting, right? It's this idea of the purest, genuinely, truthfully, it is sweet. It, it, it captivates the attention. It's a real, compelling temptation. And then this image of, of her words being smoother than oil has this idea of a soothing appeal and this unencumbered ease of engagement. It's just, it just feels right. Think about that. What oftentimes happens, and I, I speak this from very personal experience in my own, in my own family, and I have some, some friendships that I've had to walk through some of this with, but what, what happens invariably is that a relationship begins with these kinds of conversations. They're sweet, like genuinely. They, they have a sweetness to them, a, a satisfying sweetness to them. And the conversation and the engagement is just easy. It's not hard and difficult like what I'm experiencing right now in my marriage you know, that's kind of rough. That's kind of cumbersome. Or it just doesn't have that, that sweetness to it, that, 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 that appealing flavor to it. But this, this is, this is so sweet. And it's just so easy. This person, they're just so easy to get along with. They're so easy to talk to. The writer, the, the father, paints the perfect picture of how these kinds of relationships typically begin. Smooth yet fatal words. Well, where does he go with it? Here's reality. Remember what I said. Truth is key. And so even though there's this perception that gets created on the front end of a sweetness and an ease in the engagement, reality has to be at the front of the son's mind. And the reality is, that they're really bitter as wormwood. The reality is, is that they are sharp as a two-edged sword. This wormwood is an actual plant material, a plant uh, from a plant. It's actually used in alcoholic beverages um, as, a, as a flavor. It, ha- it can have an intoxicating effect, but it actually uh, can cause convulsions and even kidney failure if ingested in large quantities. So it's actually used to, to flavor or enhance a variety of wines and spirits. It was used to, used to, to flavor mead. Uh, the English used to use it in that, way, in that way. But in large quantities, it's deadly. It's deadly. So at best, 
It's intoxicating and dulls your senses of what's real, of what's true, and at worst, it kills you. Those are the words of the forbidden woman. They're not honey. They seem like honey, but they're wormwood. And then this idea, this uh, image of this two-edged sword, this is simply a weapon that cuts both ways. It's, it's designed to inflict mortal wounds from any direction. And of course, we have the reference in Hebrews that describes Scripture as sharper than any two-edged sword. But why does it describe that way? Why is that metaphor used in Hebrews? Well, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So even the passage in Hebrews describing the nature and the power and the insight, the cutting, piercing, penetrating insight and power of God's word, it uses warlike imagery to describe its effect. It cuts, it pierces, it divides, it slices Soul, the, uh, the division of the soul, the spirit, of joints and marrow. It gives you this image of the destructive, mortally injurious nature of this two-edged sword. So these words that seem so sweet, this engagement that seems so easy, so smooth, like drippings from the honeycomb, and like, like the purest, this is the purest refined olive oil. I mean, he's using terms that are like consummate descriptions in this day and time of, of the perfect um, characterization of this kind of relationship, that's not what it is. Do not be fooled. So the more you get into this, the more you can see how that our lips, truth, words protect us. Truth and reality protect us from being succumbed to this kind of temptation. So you have this, this fatal attraction of this forbidden woman first characterized in these smooth yet very fatal words. But then, then it goes even further, and it shows us how this doorway of charm, this, this open door, this charming open door of allurement and delight, quote-unquote delight, leads to a pathway of aimlessness and death. Again, trying to get the attention of this young man, do not be fooled. This is where this is going. This is reality. Richard, in my many years of talking to people, I have heard Christians in situations like this who are convinced that this is somehow God's will. Yep. We can actually believe that. I've heard that in my own family. It's heartbreaking. It is. It's devastating. After all, these emotions and so forth were created by God for another purpose. That's right. That we'll get to, right? Yes. But this doorway of, of charm and delight leads to a pathway of endlessness and death. You see this in verses 5 to 6. Her feet go down to death. This is where she's going. This is where she's taking you. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of her life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So basically on the front end, you're drawn in by this appeal, the sweetness of appeal, this, this seeming satisfaction like you'd get from the satisfaction of the purest of honey, this ease and smoothness in the relationship and the engagement, like oil, like, like the purest refined olive oil. And yet the reality is, is that this woman is leading you to death and aimlessness, a wandering aimlessness, a stumbling like we've seen descriptions of, of other, uh, and other chapters of, of, the, of the fool or of the wicked. It is not a path to satisfaction. It is not a path to life. It's quite the opposite. Now in 7 8, this, this warning against this forbidden woman, he gives a practical tip, which is this distance helps provide deliverance. Far distance, even. Verses 7 to 8. And now, O sons, so he's broadening the audience. He's saying, All my sons, everybody listen up. And now, O sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Distance helps to provide deliverance. 
John MacArthur said this. I don't know if it's a quote that originated with him, and I may have quoted it in here before because I think it's such a simple and yet profound quote that resonates with me because of what I've seen in my own life and home and family. When a man falls, he never falls far. When a man falls, he never falls far, meaning that he had already gone near the house. He had already passed by the door many, 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 many times. That's generally the, the case. And so the, the, the father, in his wisdom, is saying, stay far, far away. This is just a basic principle. It's kind of a common sense principle. In the same way that you would instruct your child to keep their hands away from a hot item, a hot stove, a hot burner, stay as far away from it as possible. I mean, you, you know, the idea in training our children is not to say, listen, so that you can learn about how hot burning stovetops are, you know, I'm going to let you kind of get close to it so they can kind of feel the heat coming off of it. I want them to, I want them to learn you know, in this real organic kind of way how heat radiates from a stove and that the closer my two-year-old's hand gets to that burner, the more they'll feel it and the more they'll un- understand. No. Stay far, far away. It's just the most basic and yet profoundly wise and insightful instruction you could give in this kind of context. When we succumb to any temptation, but in particular, this kind of temptation, if a man falls into this or a woman falls into this, they're not falling far, usually. Almost invariably. They have been going near the house, trafficking near the door of the tempter or the temptress. And then you see these destructive consequences play out in their personal, their physical, their financial, and their public. Verses 9 to 14. Lest you give your honor to others and your, ear, and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. And I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. This is a description of consequences that are personal, meaning they're internal, they're physical, meaning that trafficking in sin ultimately has a physical effect because of the nature of guilt and shame on a person's body and or the risks that are often associated with trafficking in sin. Invariably, it's, a, it's an axiomatic principle of wisdom. They're financial. This is a description of, of others gaining from your folly. Strangers taking their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And I am just telling you, I've walked through this in my family, and that is a perfect description. Perfect description. And they're public. What happens when this becomes public? When the kids have to be informed? When there's division of household? It becomes public, and it becomes painful. And it leads to someone who finds themselves at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Yes. I can't help but think that um, in in Solomon, his sons must have had ample opportunity to, um, you know, being the the son of king. king. Yeah, you can imagine. Consequences of the sin, you know, and and you know, in our own fallen nature, we will all think to ourselves, "Yeah, but that's not going to happen to us. Mm-hmm. It's it's just the way it is." Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the a child may look at their parent.
parents say, yeah, but, you know, that's not going to happen to me, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And Solomon, you know, in verse 7, of course, is saying, you know, listen to me. You know, I've been around a while. Um, but I find it interesting that in verse where in verse 2, where he tells you that you may preserve discretion, that you listen and keep knowledge. And he's telling the son, listen to my wisdom. In uh, the first chapter, is equating, in, of course, throughout the first two chapters, he's equating the wisdom that he's talking about as God's wisdom. So, you know, he's trying to point him to the fact, well, you know what, you may think I'm this doddering old king and stuff, and yet God did give me this gift of wisdom, and I may be known for, you know, throughout the world as the wisest person in the world, but this is God's wisdom. This is why right. you need to preserve, this is why you need to do it. It's not just because I say so, it's because God has said so. Right. You know, and that's got to be the only thing that's going to, you know, ultimately the only thing that's going to keep you yeah. know, this because the temptation is so real and so enticing. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, to, to continually reject the truth of God, the wisdom of God, it, you ultimately move towards suppressing that truth, right? And then it leads to all manner of, of you know, sin and wickedness and, and a sort of a tidal wave kind of effect. And that's what you have to do. I mean, that's, that's what you would have to do. It has to be an active, persistent suppression of what is true because not only are the words of the Father ringing out as true, and not only can the Son and all of us look around and see that this is true, like you see this play out over and over again in real life. It doesn't have to necessarily be in your own family or close proximity. I mean, you, just, you can look at statistics. You can, it just plays out. It is true. And the only way to ignore it is to forcefully suppress it and to, and to create in your mindset a life that is oriented toward moment by moment indulgence and fleshly carnal satisfaction. That, that is the sum total of life for me. And even though you might have to try to shape that up in your mind as a way to, as a guiding sort of philosophy, the fact of the matter is, is that the destructive consequences are still going to come. They're still going to come. Hubbard, again, as I said at the beginning, he, he says this, Nothing in life so clouds our judgment and makes stupid fools to the wisest of us as succumbing to illicit passion. All our useful energies are drained off to defend or conceal that behavior. The colossal compromise of adultery colors all other value judgments and causes us to stagger along life's road half-tipsy. The teachers, To the teachers, it was worth every possible effort to prevent their young people from falling into this bottle dungeon of perverted sexuality whose walls sloped inward to the top and made escape only a wild fantasy. That's what we're talking about when we talk about consequences. And the passionate warnings of the teacher, of the father, couldn't be more explicit. Well, then he moves to the more encouraging words, the satisfying blessing of pure marital love and intimacy. You see this in verses 15 to 20. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? A portion of this language has a, a Song of Solomon kind of um, uh, phraseology. It's very akin to the Song of Solomon as it's describing the beauty and the satisfying blessing of pure marital love and intimacy. I read in a, in a commentary that to the Oriental, the love song was a sacred thing, and so this kind of language would not have been considered indelicate. Right, right. It's very... It's very um, it's very explicit in its implication, but it's not improper. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's lovely. It's, 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 high, it's highlighting what is worthy of being highlighted in a, in a very poetic and beautiful way. Um, Kidner, one commentator, said this, Strict fidelity is not an impoverishing isolationism. From such a marriage, blessing streams out in the persons and influences of a true family. 
And again, this is about passing on wisdom from one generation to the next. And when you think about what formulates a society at any given point in history, what is it? It's whatever one generation learned and how they were informed and how their thinking was shaped and how their notion of civil life and family life was formed and how they manifest that and live that out as adults. That's what forms and shapes society. And so to the extent that the whole blessing and benefit and beauty and purity and God-given wonder of marital love and intimacy is adulterated, is redefined, is compromised as a norm in society, so goes society. And we are experiencing some of that in our own culture and life, right? We're, we're seeing that. that. What you're seeing is a complete redefinition of what family life should look like, of what married life should look like, of what the norms and taboos of sexuality are. Well, now it's not just redefining adultery. I mean, now there's open marriages. That's right. Where it's like... Celebrated. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah, the, 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 the vehicles and the avenues for pursuing this kind of wickedness are only getting broader. They're only getting more convenient. They're only getting more accessible. And yet the, the, the father is holding up the beauty and wonder of, of purity in marital love as something to be altogether satisfying and wonderful and to be a blessing that is a, a societal and generational kind of blessing. He uses this idea of streams flowing out like water into the streets. And it's this, it's this picture of it being a blessing. And so why would you want to take something that is to be confined to this God-ordained relationship and try to scatter it into the streets? Try to just really let it wash away in its effect. He's, it really boils down to, starting around the 50s, the rejection of everything that God has given us. Right. That's right. God himself and everything else that his commands and his commandments yeah. teachings. Yeah, and there's this cyclical thing you know, in every society in history, I mean, just over and over and over again. People don't learn. We don't, we don't wise up. Let your fountain be blessed, he says in 18 to 20. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, he, he says. He uses this idea of, of this fountain and this, this language of blessing and, and, and terminology of actual delight and the, a pure form of intoxication. Not, not a wicked form of intoxication, but, but there, is a, there is a level of satisfaction to be gained in the purity of marital love. Uh, I think it was Kidner who said, It is highly important to see sexual delight in marriage as God-given And history confirms that when marriage is viewed chiefly as a business arrangement, not only is God's bounty misunderstood, but human passion seeks other outlets. So to take marriage and the marriage, intimate marriage relationship and to change the dynamic of it away from this kind of picture, this kind of model, it doesn't take away the passion that humans have for intimacy in physical intimacy, and so it finds other outlets. Isn't that what and it gets, spoke to you? That's right. They were like, that's right. Not in their marriage, that's exactly right. So there's this beautiful language here, but it also speaks of, of intent, of focus, of not... If you think about what often happens when people are lured away to infidelity in their marital relationship... Um, there is a, um, there's almost a passive approach to their own marriage. In other words, oftentimes what you will hear is this type of language that says that, you know, the flames just kind of died. You know, there's just, we're just, we're just not in love anymore. We're just not really connecting. You know, we're just, you know, our passions for one another have died. I mean, it's just not like it used to be. There's, there's just sort of a passive resignation. But this passages is saying, no, you, you delight in, you, you engage in generating delight in the purity and blessing of marital love and intimacy. There is, a, there is an effort 
a persistent, ongoing effort to hold this up and cherish it and value it and thereby delight in it. It's nothing passive about it. It's nothing that's just confined to some silly and shallow notions of chemistry. We just don't have any chemistry anymore, you know, that kind of thing. Silly, that's silliness, absolute silliness and folly. Well, you have this concluding summary in verses 21 to 23. We'll wrap up with this. He says, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. There's a caution for you. And he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. And is it not true that oftentimes these, these infidelity, or excuse me, infidelity is often shrouded in, in the dark and in secret and hidden, right? That's, that's the nature of it. The nature of it is, is for it to be secret and hidden and kept from public view for as long as possible. And there's also an intrigue about it for people. And there's, it's mysterious and it's exciting and it's adventurous as long as it's held secret. But the, 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 the father here in Proverbs, Solomon, is saying, there is nothing secret. Do not be fooled by that kind of idea. Again, calling him back to reality. The Lord... Everything happens. Man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. And you have this, this uh, statement about ways and paths, which is literally like wagon tracks that are made from constant use. These everyday patterns and habits of life. In other words, the everyday traffic patterns of your life are before the Lord. He ponders. He contemplates. He evaluates. He judges all your paths. And then this dreadful description of the iniquities of the wicked, that they ensnare him. Well, I pray that the Lord would continue to refine our view and appreciation and love of our spouses and our marriages, and that we would do well to continue to caution the next generation in this area of fidelity in marriage, and particularly in the life of the body of Christ. What a tragedy when we don't do that. Well, we need to close in prayer be dismissed.